to see everyone today. Um, great to be here after being gone uh, last week. My wife and I, we took a trip back to Illinois. Uh, I had a nephew uh, that got married, and so it was great to see some family and also to, to spend some time with my 81-year-old mother, who uh, uh, she's just great. always just treasure the time that I have with her. Here's a picture of her. She got all spiffed up uh, for uh, the wedding. And the thing you have to know about my mom, even at 81, she still has a wicked sense of humor. And so uh, we're walking her back to her, her room. She lives at a retirement center. And right in the middle of the hallway, uh, there was a mask, right? It's just kind of like out there. It's just kind of a little bit odd. So she looks at Jen and I, and she's like, oh my goodness, well, look at that. It looks like someone got raptured. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, like, mom, you got this Christian sense of humor and keeping up with your eschatology as well. But uh, so, you know, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, so there is no shortage of Italians. And so anybody of Italian descent, and see, I already knew it. Like, there's a whoop. Yeah, anybody else? Anybody? I, I know you guys want to show it off, so it's okay. Uh, but there's no shortage of Italians. In fact, um, when we had our company, uh, the individual, when we were just starting off, the individual that helped us out with our HR, his last name was Capone. So his name was Andy Capone. So he was actually the great nephew of Al Capone. And, and so, you know, he's talked about stories about his uncle basically saying that uh, his uncle could drive as fast backwards as he could forwards because he was Al Capone's getaway driver. And so, but with so many Italians um, in Illinois and Rockford, where I'm from, there is no shortage of amazing pizza. And, and pizza is one of my, you know, favorites, but, uh, you know, everyone's probably like, oh yeah, Chicago deep dish, which, you know, I would agree with. However, there's one thing that constitutes uh, amazing pizza, and it's this, the cheese. The cheese makes all the difference. It's that I had not there, right? And so it's not only the quality of the cheese, because this place that we went back to, uh, that we always go back to, that we long and pray for when we go back to Illinois, is this place called Nino's Pizza. And they use this Amish cheese. And I, I don't know what that means, uh, but it's really good. So the Amish do things really well. So there's this Amish cheese, right? But it's not just the quality of the cheese. Overwhelmingly, it is the quantity. Okay, the quantity of the cheese makes all the difference in the world. Now, here's the thing when it comes to pizza and cheese, okay? Cheese for pizza is not meant to be sprinkled, okay? There should be no sprinkling going on. What cheese is meant for pizza, this is how it rolls. It gets dumped. It gets dumped and spread. And that, that's what constitutes good pizza. And so, and here's a picture of it right there. I, I, I don't even know, I didn't know I was going to talk about this in the message today, but but in the middle of that pizza, that's a good half inch thick of cheese. And so, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. And so, like, you know, once you have pizza from Lino's, you don't go back to craving Domino's or or I'm sorry, Blaze Pizza, who sprinkles her cheese. So, I apologize if you guys are fans, but this is real pizza. This is the real thing, you're probably wondering, like, where are you going with this? And so the purpose behind this story is that Jen and I, one of the first things that we were talking about when we were going back, it's like, we were going to Lino's Pizza. And we actually got off the plane, drove to Lino's Pizza, and that was our first meal there. And it, it was great, but we had this longing and craving for uh, pizza at, at Lino's. And so, uh, and that's really kind of, uh, in, in a nutshell, uh, how we want to have this longing and craving for the word of God. And so 
Uh, there's many things that we desire in this life, and we really want to have this a deep, this rich desire for uh, the Word of God. And last week, uh, Travis shared with us, and, and yes, Travis, I know how to FaceTime, haha, <laughs> funny guy, uh, but uh, he shared with us this fifth command that we see in the book of 1 Peter. And remember, the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, Peter is talking to us about this glorious salvation, this glorious inheritance that awaits us. But then at that point in verse 13, he transitions into uh, a few commands. And the first of those commands and, um, is just basically saying, set your hope fully uh, on the grace that is to be revealed to you. And then he follows that up with be holy, uh, for I am holy. And then thirdly, he, he states, uh, fear the Lord. And so we are to uh, conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our exile. And then last week, uh, Travis has shared with us that we are to love one another out of a, a pure heart. And so, so this week we see a, a fifth command, which is now us entering into chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And this is now our seventh me message from 1 Peter. And he gives us this command that we are to long, long for the pure spiritual milk. And so since we're on this topic of food today, we see this command sandwiched between uh, three short verses at the beginning of Second Peter. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in First Peter, we're picking off at chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 3. So just go ahead and follow along as I read. Um, so we hear from the Apostle Peter, he states this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants, long, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Pray with me, church. God, uh, we uh, just celebrate so many things. Uh, God, as uh, the Christmas season is upon us, as we are entering into this Thanksgiving week, as we're able to uh, dedicate these children uh, to the Lord. Uh, God, we want to make sure that we are leaning in to what you have for us. And what you have for us is always and continually found in, in the Word of God. And so, God, allow us to have this longing, this craving, this desire for your Word. Because from your Word, this is how decisions are made. God, many say that there's thousands of upon thousands of decisions that we make each and every day. So, Lord, we want those decisions to be governed by you. And if they are governed, governed by you, they will be governed by your word. So help us as we navigate through your scriptures today and as we are able to look at how we are to live our lives. So we ask these things in your name. Amen. So today's passage, it actually starts off mirroring a phrase that we see throughout scripture to put off, to put away, to leave something behind. And, and we saw that, uh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago when we referred to Ephesians 4.22, where Paul tells us to put off, put away your old self, uh, which was uh, marked by corruption through deceitful desires, and to put on this new self in true righteousness and holiness. We see this also in Romans 13.12, where we're told the night is far gone, that the day is at hand. And, and so then let us cast off the works, cast off the works of darkness and, and put on, put on the armor of light. And we also see this in Hebrews 12, one, a, a well-known 
verse, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we are told to lay aside every weight, lay aside every sin, and we are told to run this race. And, and so today, we see this again. Peter is telling us to put away something. And this is something that we are to put away, again, is all malice, uh, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And so he uses this word to put away, this Greek word, which is apotithemi, which means to cast off or reject. And this was a, a term, an early term that Christians actually referred to when they were being baptized. And so uh, they were baptized and they wanted to put away, uh, cast off their, their old garments. And then they were they put on new robes and new clothing of righteousness that were symbolic of a new life in Christ. And so this is uh, a usage of this word. There's some other usages of this word. I remember growing up, they had this uh, you know fundraising event and it was mud volleyball. Like, that is just so disgusting. Like, could you imagine? Like, we've all been in situations where we have to get out of some of these clothes, like maybe after a sporting event or something along those lines. I remember our first year in physical therapy school, we definitely had to do that. Why? Because we had to spend an entire year with a cadaver, okay? Gross. And so we had to wear lab clothes. And I'll spare you many stories, but save this one. Uh, we had to wear these lab clothes. And, and let me tell you, formaldehyde and cadavers, that is just a stench that you will never forget, okay? It is just the epitome of gross. And then you know, just like, remember gym class, I don't even think they do gym class anymore, but for those of us that remember gym class, remember you always had that guy, and we had that guy in our physical therapy class that, you know, it's regular practice. You're supposed to take your clothes home. You're supposed to take your gym clothes home. You're supposed to take your lab clothes home and wash them. And then you have that guy that's like, he doesn't think it's important, all right? And, and everyone knows, and it's like, dude, you smell worse than the cadaver, right? And so uh, the, the clothes are crawling out of there. And I think we actually remember at the end of our gross anatomy class, we went ahead and just collectively just threw away all of our clothes. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. We don't want to wear filthy, smelly clothes anymore. And just as we don't want to do that, we also don't want to live in the sins and trespasses of our former life, of our former self, or maybe some of the things that we've moved on from because we've matured in Christ. We no longer want to, to live in those areas of our life. We have put them off. We have put them to death. We have put them away. And so that's really what we're talking about here. The old is gone. The old is gone and the new has come. And so back to this word, apotithemi, or to put away in this verse means that we are ridding ourselves today. We're ridding ourselves. We're putting away, this is in the past, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And so these are things that we want to be marked by because if we continue to participate in these things, we are going to have this thirst, this hunger, this longing, this craving for the Word of God, for the spiritual milk that we're going to be talking about here in a second. So, but isn't it interesting here that Peter, what he actually highlights here, I mean, he could be talking about some more serious or egregious sins, and he does actually do that in chapter 4, where he addresses sexual immorality and, and drunkenness and, and lawless idolatry. So you're kind of asking, why isn't he addressing that just right up front? Why is he really leaning into maybe these secondary things that one would look at? So, well, in chapter 4, he's actually making the assumption that 
you have already stepped into some level, some aspects of maturity. And what that means, you've actually moved away from those more serious sins that are a little bit more um, egregious in nature. And he states this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, what does that mean? He's basically saying that the time has passed for, for you to be participating in these things of serious nature. You have moved past these things. You no longer are to be participating in the things such as the Gentiles. And so he's saying that the time has passed for this reckless behavior. And so, and now what he's saying, I want to lean in. I want to lean in a little bit more specifically to maybe some of these sins, some of these things that you may overlook. And so saying like, you should have already moved past some of these big things, right? But now I want to lean into some of these things that oftentimes we don't necessarily address. And so, and it's important because these areas that he's wanting us to put away or to put off can be so detrimental to the unity, to the body of the church. So it's really important because we've all been part of aspects within church or within family, within relationships where there can be so much damage that can ensue because of some of these things that we're going to address. And so it's important that we're told to put away these things. It's also important because a lot of times we may just overlook these things. And we can say, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, living the life and I'm not participating in some of these things. But then, you know, for some of these other things, we may, just human nature, go to great lengths, make excuses for to justify little sins or, or just other areas of our life. I mean, we are self-preserving individuals. And so oftentimes you say, oh, I'm not dealing with that. But we might need to come, kind of come back around and say, maybe I need to look into that a little bit more. Is there something that the Lord wants to reveal to me so I could live a life that's more glorifying to Him? And so, because again, we go to great lengths to justify bad behavior. And so the first point is, what are some of these things that we're to put away? So let, let the condemnation begin here. So I'm just kidding. But malice, malice is this general word for evil or wickedness or depravity. And specifically, as all of these are ascribed to within the confines of relationships. And so what does malice look like within a relationship? And, and so it is ill will towards someone. It's like not towards a thing, it's ill will towards someone. And so uh, instead of being for a person, we're actually looking for ways to tear them down. Instead of being uh, their um, teammate, instead of having this teammate mentality, we actually just step into them being an adversary or an opponent. And so, again, this could be so detrimental within the body of Christ because we are to be for each other. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ within uh, the body. And this next term is deceit. And deceit is kind of birthed out of malice. And, and so the Greek word here is dolos, dolon. We'll come back to that in a second. But the definition is, is cunning, uh, treachery, uh, dishonesty. And, and so these are basically things that aren't truthful and we have an ulterior motive behind them, uh, basically saying that it's it's not only lying, because we all know that lying is bad, it's breaking one of the Ten Commandments, but it's lying with the mindset of a plotting or scheming behind getting something that you desire against another person. And we may have you know, right, ran into these individuals. I mean, I'm sure we've all met or know of, and hopefully this isn't a self-description, but that individual that is this disingenuous in nature, it's like, I don't know if I could 
really trust this person. It's almost like they're, they're talking out of both sides uh, of their mouth. And this is really uh, what constitutes the word deceit. And then the third one, that, the third item that we're to put off is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And, and I think we're all pretty familiar with this. And hypocrisy is this inconsistency that exists between inward thoughts or who I think I am and this inconsistency between these inward thoughts and outward actions. And so you're not walking uh, the talk, essentially. And so Jesus, he speaks pretty firmly and partially against this in regards to uh, the um, Pharisees as far as them participating in religious hypocrisy. So they, they would go out and you know, look at me, be praying on, on the street corners and drawing attention to themselves. And the motivation was really uh, uplifting themselves, not really uh, living a life that was glorifying to God. It was just religious acts and needs for them. And this is also something that we need to take into consideration because there's nothing that the world, the secular world, loves to just like, uh, you know, talk about and, and just say, hey, you know, see, look at that, that Christian over there. You know, they... They talk and talk, they you know, say all these things, but look at how they live their life. And there's nothing more than the world loves to see is when Christians take a spill. And even leaders were familiar with this, and they just love to say, see, see, I, I, I told you so. So it is something that we should guard against. Make sure that we are walking the talk. Make sure that what is going on on the inside, like I'm a follower of Christ, that that is evident the outside. Not to be legalistic as far as that is concerned, but to really step into like what is truly a life that's glorifying to God. And so so we see malice and deceit and hypocrisy. And then the fourth one is envy. And these next two terms, envy and slander, they're overflows of, of malice. And, and again, you see someone as an adversary or, or a rival. And it really is overwhelmed by jealousy or coveting not only a person, uh, but maybe this person's things or, or belongings. In Romans 12, 15, uh, we are told to rejoice when others rejoice, and we are told to weep when others re- weep. And so, but what envy kind of does is we, we kind of rejoice when the people that we don't like are weeping, and we we weep when they're actually rejoicing. So, so you know, we've all been in situations like that. You know, we well, someone, you know, has this happen to them, or they, they get this, and you're just kind of like, you can see it on their face. It's like, oh, wow, I, I just, I wish that was me. And so we have to be careful to, to guard against envy and, and coveting. And then the fifth term that Peter tells us about and is uh, that is not to be a part of the Christian life is this word slander, which means evil speech. And slander actually even sounds evil. It's just not a very nice word. You just hear the word slander and you just almost think of just, um, you know, evil. So it is an evil verbal assault on someone in untrue or unfair ways. Now, I don't think that any of us would basically say that I'm a, I go around slandering or I'm guilty of that, right? I mean, that's kind of a big word that you kind of see in the news or in the public, but... The thing that we truly need to guard against is disparaging gossip. And, and so, you know, we all at some point in our lives are, are, are guilty of this. And, and so what are some ways that we could guard against this? Well, one, one way is this. It's like, hey, don't be the person, first and foremost. Don't be the person that says, hey, did you hear about 
Renaissance? Or, or do you know what happened? Uh, like these are things that aren't becoming uh, of a follower of Christ. And so just be careful to guard against that. Oftentimes too, if we do hear of something, you know, what does it look like to allow that to come in and not come out? Because oftentimes we we may hear that juicy information, right? Oh, I gotta share that with my best theory or whatever. We hear that, and it so easily comes in and so easily goes out. And so, what does it look like oftentimes to maybe hear some of those things and just allow it to stop right there? To to be what would be referred to as a vault. Like, I know this person is trustworthy. I, I know that because I never hear him gossip. But also gossip, it's not very becoming of yourself. It doesn't help your reputation any because if someone hears you gossiping, well, what's one of the first thing that they're probably going to think of? It's like, well, if they're talking about this person, I, I can only wonder and imagine how they talk about me. So let, let's move on from all this condemnation, right? Okay, let's get to some other aspects of, of this passage. No, it, it's good. It's important because, again, these are little things that maybe sometimes we just take for granted and a life in Christ is just a continual life of sanctification. We want to be growing into maturity. We want to be growing from one degree of glory to the next. And it's important that we lean into many of these things that oftentimes may be overlooked. And so, so as we talked about a little bit earlier, if we are to be putting away, if we're to put off these things, then we need to be replacing it with something. And what does Peter charge us to replace uh, these sins of? of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander with. And so we see here in 1 Peter 2, 2, and here's the command of the passage, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. And so, so we're ridding ourselves of these things, and we are longing, we are, we are craving for pure spiritual milk that allows us to mature into our salvation. So earlier we talked about this, this Greek word for deceit, which was dolon or, or, or dolos. And so now we see this word pure, which is adalon. So it's the antithesis of, of that word. And so again, we're supposed to move away from deceit, dolon, and we're supposed to drink something pure, adalon. And so, but what is, what is this pure spiritual milk? And so what is it that he's talking about? And so this spiritual milk is the Word of God, the Word of God. And, and so we've got to do a little bit of a, a word dive here because the word that he uses for spiritual is logical. And so this means rational or reasonable. And so and this is where we would arrive at the word logical. Okay, so logicon, logical. And so both of these words, though, the root of it is Lagos or, or logos, and so some people pronounce it either way. And so this is the word that Peter actually uses. If we look back at chapter one, verse twenty-three, remember that this is a letter. There are no chapter or verse delineations when he wrote this. But in chapter one, verse twenty-three, what does he say? He says, "You have been born again, not by imperishable seed, but by but of imperishable through the living and abiding." Word of God. And then he states the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord shall remain forever. And he concludes chapter one by saying, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this pure spiritual milk 
many would just affirm and agree and say he's obviously talking about the word of God. I wouldn't say many, I would say all. And, and so, in fact, the King James, New King James, and NAS, NASB all translate this word spiritual, the logicon, as the milk of the word. And so, so now that we know that this command is to long, to crave, to strive after the pure, unadulterated word of God, we have to ask ourselves this question, do we have this craving? Do we have this longing? Do we have this desire for the word of God? Because we should. And none of us get off the hook with this. This is the word of God. This is the blueprint for our life. It's what feeds our soul. It is our lifeline. And so, so we should have this craving, this longing for the word of God. And, and elsewhere in scripture, we see this metaphor that we're being told by Paul to move away from the milk and really uh, take in the, the food, the spiritual food of God. But this isn't what Peter's referring to here, because what does he refer to us as? He refers to us as, as um, um, spiritual infants. And, and so just how fitting uh, on a day that we're doing child dedications, right? How, how fitting, because there is no substitute for newborns when it comes to feeding time. Am I right? I mean, like, yeah, think of this little silly picture. Think of if you had a baby that was full grown, right? If this baby was full grown, right? Little Ava right there, or Bennett, Bennett probably more so, or, or Ashton, or, or Lexi, and you had this baby that was full grown, and it was feeding time. They would be hurting people. Like, they would be destroying objects, because that's how much they crave and long for Food and so and this is a you know they bring a whole new definition to the word hangry and, and I know all about that because I've got three boys in, in Ivy but the boys they ranged from eight seven eight eleven and eight thirteen right and so uh, those are big boys and so there was no substitute for for feeding time there still isn't it's like it doesn't stop so they just know that, okay, so it just gets worse, okay, but, uh, so this is the picture of my youngest, and that, that's Mason, I, that is a well-fed baby, okay, I mean, I mean, people will pick him up and be like, whoa, he's solid, and so it's never like, oh, really, they think, like, oh, all right, so, so yeah, this is a, a well-fed uh, baby, so, so just as infants, though, they long for the pure spiritual milk, right, of the, of the, uh, of the mother, and we are to be longing and craving and desiring the word of God. Because what happens if an infant isn't fed? Well, they become malnourished, right? And so what happens to us if we're not regularly taking in the word of God? What happens? Well, we become spiritually malnourished. And, and so, so I shared this uh, a few years ago, but one of the largest churches in America, they had a wake-up call. And this wake-up call was... They did a survey, and uh, 15,000 people filled out the survey, and they wanted to know what moved people on as far as their spiritual growth is concerned. Like, what took people to a place of spiritual maturity? Now, it wasn't uh, Sunday morning services, it, it wasn't programs, it, it wasn't groups, it, it wasn't any of those things, which are all uh, vital to our, our growth in Christ, but it was uh, without a doubt, the biggest, most effective strategy to move people on into their spiritual growth was biblical engagement. Biblical engagement, overwhelming 
And so that's important to know. Uh, nothing has a greater impact on your spiritual growth than reading your Bible and reflecting on Scripture. And that was the result uh, of that survey. There is no substitute. There's no substitute for the Word of God in our lives. And so this is really important because spiritual maturity has nothing to do with how long you've been a Christian for. You could be a Christian for, for decades, but if you have a very little craving or hunger or knowledge for the Word of God, you're still a spiritual infant. And so this longing for the Word of God and knowing and taking that longing and craving and acting on it, that's what constitutes spiritual maturity. I'm going to take the things that God has for us. I'm going to read them. I'm going to take them in. And this is how I'm going to live my life. Because, you know, you say, hey, I've been a Christian for 40 years, and, but I don't read my Bible. Well, that's not a mature Christian. That is not stepping into uh, the maturity of our salvation. So, so a couple weeks ago, I, if you remember, I, I challenged uh, the women here at Redeemer. And I, I said, hey, what we need here at this church is women, are women that know truth, that, that love truth, that live their life according to truth, that, that know where to go to for the consummate source of truth. And, and that is the word of God. And, and so and this isn't just a charge for the women in our church. This is a, a charge for, for all of us, because so often, oftentimes in our, in our life, in our day to day activities, what we take in, we so often go after the, the cheap counterfeits, right? Or just the table scraps. When we have a table, we have a seat at the main course, which is the Word of God. And this this pure Word of God is where everything needs to be flowing from. It needs to be the epicenter. It needs to be the nucleus. It needs to be the source and where truth comes from in our lives. And, and so many of us are familiar with this term, sola scriptura. And so the word sola is Latin for alone or only. And so we talked about this a little bit at, at Rock Harbor. And so this is one of the five solas that was birthed out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which served as just a, a defense to the, the valid or perceived injustices of the Catholic Church, Martin Luther. And, you know, he, he nailed the theses to the door at Wittenberg Castle. And so it was a culmination of the theological convictions uh, that really marked the essentials of Christianity. Sola Scriptura. That's what the five solas were from. Sola Scriptura, uh, which is Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which is grace alone. Sola Fide, which is faith alone. Solas Christus, which is in Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. And so just a, a quick analogy would be if you look at it as a temple, we could look at the foundation of that temple being sola scriptura, and we could look at the, the columns of that temple being sola gratia, sola fide, and sola solas Christus, and then the roof line being soli Deo gloria. So we are, we, our faith, the foundation is scripture, and then we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So we hear something like this, and we're like, yes, sola scriptura, that's, that's where we want to be, that's, that's what we would affirm, but many of us, whether we realize it or, or not, that's not necessarily where we land. We actually land at this place referred to as prima scriptura. So what is the difference, sola scriptura or prima scriptura? And we are going to take a, a deep dive into this today, but sola scriptura would, would hold to the fact 
that God's word is inspired. It, it's it's not only inspired, it's authoritative, it's infallible, it's inerrant, but also it is sufficient. Sufficient. We, we've got everything we need in, in the word of God. It, it covers all the bases. And Sola Scriptura also states that, that God isn't continuing to change what he has to say. We don't have new revelations. He has already done this. He has already spoken. He's already told us what we need to know that all things that pertain to life and godliness through his word, sola scriptura. But prima scriptura would be the belief that, that scripture is not the only way, but it is the primary, prima, primary. And so it's basically saying, hey, I still believe the Bible. I still believe that this is the source, but I also would really lean into and ascribe to these other sources of divine revelation or divine inspiration. And this, in, in essence, would say and question the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, so it's like, well, I believe Scripture, but I also believe these other things as well, and these other things are, are very important to me, so I'm going to hold that as divine revelation. Now, this isn't, uh, we're not talking about the same faith, we're not talking about the same religion, but we would look at Mormonism and we would say that they would say, yeah, we believe in the Bible, uh, but we also believe in the Book of Mormon, we also believe in the Pearl of Great Price, we also believe in affirm doctrines and covenants, we would also affirm that the prophets continue to have the authority to change doctrine. Okay. Change what has already been written, change what has already been spoken. Uh, another example would be Roman Catholicism. And this, what I mean by that is when the Pope, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra or a papal bull is decreed, then he is taking the apostolic position that his words are um, infallible, that his words are from God. And, and we know that all a man is fallen. One man doesn't hold this high regard. We are all sinful, fallen creatures in, in need of Christ. But they would hold that the Pope's words are infallible and speaking from the authority of God himself. And then, so another example would be um, within our, our own faith, which would be just the ends of Christian charismania. And so, you know, individuals or churches or movements that would say, hey, uh, we believe in the Bible, we believe in all of these doctrines. However, uh, we also believe that there is ongoing, continuing revelation. So uh, an example of this would be a five-fold ministry where they would look at Ephesians 4.11 and to the apostles, to the, to the prophets, to uh, the evangelists to the, the shepherds and to the teachers, all equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, they would say that the apostleship and, and prophets are continuing and they are giving us divine revelation. And this would be referred to as the New Apostolic Reformation. And the church that participates in that would be the Bethel Church. And so, wow, John, you just threw a bunch of grenades out there. I think I stepped on some toes. Hopefully I did because this is important. It's, a, it's very important. And so now, maybe you're not looking at the Pope's words as being authoritative. Uh, maybe, you know, you're not reading the Book of Mormon. Uh, maybe you're not, you know, calling your pastor apostle, right? I mean, Apostle John is going to make sure I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But, but, all of us at some point, we are guilty to varying degrees of drinking the Kool-Aid. And what do I mean by that? Well, What's the latest and greatest societal movement that is taking us away from biblical truth? Or, I mean, 
what's the latest and greatest personality profile that I am just like spending exorbitant amounts of time in? Because here's the thing, an obsessed culture loves to obsess about themselves. Or, or what are what's some of the literature that I'm reading, right, that is Christian literature, however, it has no foundation for biblical truth. And, and these are some of the things that we say, like, oh, like, I, you know, I love scripture, I hear scripture, but I really love this. And, and, and we allow some of these things to lead and, and guide our life. And yes, are we to read? Uh, are we to fill our, our minds with knowledge? Are we supposed to be able to know what God's word has to say so we can see the counterfeits? Yes, but all of these things oftentimes, you know, these are things that are good, but we go to the wrong sources. So that's why it's important that, you know, it's important that we read. It's important that we take in information, but it's also important to really run that through the filter. Like, is this a good study? Is this a good book to read? Now, maybe you're reading it from a critical point of view. That's okay, but sometimes we have to just really guard what we have uh, coming in into our minds. And when I was home this this past uh, this past weekend, home is that Illinois, but there's a church there, and it had uh, a rainbow flag, and it said um, it, it said God is still speaking, and, and so we could decipher that however we would like, saying that God is still speaking. But here's the thing. God is still speaking. He, he's speaking to us through his word, which has been spoken. So there aren't any needs or directives or necessity for new divine revelation. God's word is immutable. It, it hasn't changed. It, it has stood for 2,000 years. As we heard last week from Travis, the, the grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is something, when we talk about sola scriptura, but we need to be a church that really affirms this. And so, but moreover, this craving for the pure spiritual milk, it, it should be a part of our lives because it is a byproduct of our salvation. And as we conclude with this final point, that we have to work backwards here. We have to work backwards here because Peter tells us in the third verse, if indeed, if indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. He, he continues to validate this, this thirst, this hunger, this craving, this longing for the word of God. And he keeps doing this by continuing, continuing to go back to Old Testament scripture as he so eloquently and strategically navigates us. And what is he saying? What is he meaning? What is he referring to when he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he is taking us back to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verses 4 through 8. This is just such a beautiful passage of scripture. And it states this. In fact, why don't we all go ahead and just stand real quick. I'm just going to stand. Or we're just going to read this out loud together. I'm going to shut off my mic. All right, here we go. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to me are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. 
and save him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Our craving, our craving for the Word of God needs to come and needs to be birthed out of the goodness of God. And some of us, we really need to hear this today. It's important because this is a conditional statement. It states, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you have received Christ, if you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and recognize as Lord and Savior, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you have done that, you need to step, and we need to step into the joy of our salvation. That if we've done these things, if we've tasted that the Lord is good, this should give us a hunger and thirst for more. So the question is, do you revel in the Lord's goodness? Because if you haven't taken time to do that yet, and you've been listening to these sermons through First Peter, I would encourage you to do that. Have you really taken the time to get away and recognize the glory of our salvation? The gift that we've been given. Oftentimes we just kind of go about our, our day and, and we don't take the time to ponder and meditate who we are in Christ. And, and we see here coming up in a couple of verses that you're either going to look at Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, as precious or a stumbling block. I mean, when's the last time you have taken the time and just been so thankful? And, you know, as we have Thanksgiving coming up, you know, the biggest thing that we need to have Thanksgiving for is our salvation in Christ. When's the last time we have taken the time to recognize that I was dead in the trespasses and sin? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When's the last time that we've taken the time to, to just really realize and understand and know that we were plucked, that we were taken out of these things and the Lord has redeemed us and he has put us on the beach and while we were drowning and performed spiritual CPR and now what was once dead, we are alive in Christ. When's the last time that you've taken the time and realized that we have not only been made alive in Christ, we have been adopted into his kingdom and what that adoption means is that We've been clothed with his robes of righteousness and, and deemed and recognized as sons and daughters of God. When's the last time we've been thankful for all the amazing blessing that the Lord gives us? Uh, all of the, the gifts that we've been giving that are coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Or when's the last time that we've taken the time to, to really, instead of saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? When's the last time that we have just said, Lord, through the, the tough times, through the trials, through the difficult seasons, through the uphill battles, taking the time and said, Lord, I'm so thankful you're still here. Your presence is a sure and steadfast anchor for my soul. 
These are the things that we need to step into when we read this verse and say, have you tasted that the Lord is good? All of this, all of this just pales in comparison to the unfading glory that awaits us. And, and so have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? And oftentimes we can be so blind to these things. And if you're in this room right now and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't know how any other way to tell this to you, but you have no idea what you're missing out on. You have the greatest gift. You could have the greatest gift imaginable, a life in Christ. This, this is your best life. This, your best life now, it isn't all the world that has to offer your best life. It is a life in Christ. So delight in his beauty, delight in his kindness, delight in his goodness. Because if you do these things, you will be hungry for so much more. A life in Christ is so much better than Lino's Pizza. <laughs> a life in Christ so much better than the best vacation you could dream of. A life in Christ is so much better than you know, money in the bank, a life of security, ease, and comfort. It's better than all of those things. Why? Because our salvation is a well you could keep going back to, and it never runs empty. It never runs empty. Everything in this world that we cling so tightly to are just empty cisterns, and one day it will all be gone, and all that will remain is Jesus Christ and our life in Him. It is our fading. So, Redeemer, if, if this is you, if this is you, if you have tasted, if you have experienced God's goodness, then put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, and long, long for the, for the pure spiritual life, which is the Lord God. Let's pray. Lord, I know writings, I was just challenged. I was just challenged to say, Lord, you're all we need. And so, Lord, help us to continually step into that mindset. You know, as Peter is writing this church to a group of believers that dispersed exiles that were under severe persecution, and yet they clung to you so tightly. But Lord, we could be lulled to sleep by the things and the beauty of this world. So God, help us always to long and crave for more of you. The unadulterated, the pure, the Adelon, the spiritual milk, which is the word of God. So God, help us to be diligent in that. And through it, Lord, we will see you be glorified in our lives. Amen.